Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former police officers and current members of the Acadia healthcare team, Bill Mazur and Joe Collins. Now, this was an incredibly unique conversation. You have two police officers from totally different geographic areas in the U.S., each with their own powerful mental health story, each in a leadership position in law enforcement, transitioned out and now is working on the mental health side for the biggest mental health facility organization in the U.S. So we discuss a host of topics from their journeys into law enforcement, some of the challenges facing the modern day police officer, leadership, mental health, addiction, the gamut of facilities available to our first responders, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast for the sole reason to make it easier for others to find. And this is a free library now of well over 800 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Bill Mazur and Joe Collins. Enjoy. Well, Bill and Joe, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're in two different locations, so we're doing a kind of three for today. But uh, thank you and welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. We're, we're just very honored and thrilled to be here to, to have our talk. So we're going to kind of lead you down the path that I normally do. But obviously, with three of us, we'll do it one at a time. So we'll start with Bill. Um I want to start the kind of early life and then walk through. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Sure. So I was born in Southern New Jersey, specifically Atlantic City, New Jersey. And uh, I was born into, you know, your typical blue collar family. Um, my, my father was a police officer, uh, wound up doing 40 years in the profession and uh, I'm the youngest of six siblings, sort of your uh, typical American Brady Bunch, three boys and three girls. And so uh, public service was, you know, I refer to it a lot of times as being in my DNA, if you will. Every member of my family was committed or devoted in their professional life, their adult life to some sort of public service. I have another, I have a, a brother who's a police officer, a brother who's an orthopedic surgeon two sisters who were OBGYN nurses and a, another sister who was a, an educator taught grade school. Uh, like I mentioned, my father did 40 years in the service uh, in, in law enforcement. And my mother, uh, she was like an administrative assistant for, you know, her earlier years and then was dedicated to a, you know, a stay at home mom and, and um, you know, all the things that attending to activities around six children. So, um, I, I was raised in that, in that blue collar sort of, you know, environment. And, you know, when I look back, I, I, I guess I, I identified 
with the good guys and girls, you know, see my dad, um, you know, in the uniform, um, having his friends over and sort of being around police families and cousins who were firefighters. And, and so that was, that was my normal. That was, you know, you identify with those things. So um, I originally had planned to possibly go to law school um, or into federal law enforcement. I was, I was really looking at the FBI at that, at that time. And long story short, I did my first two years of college at Temple University in Philadelphia. And uh, the police test came up for Atlantic City, New Jersey. And a few of my friends were taking it. And they said, look, let's just, why don't you just take the test? I was actually a lifeguard at the time uh, for summers in Atlantic City, which is sort of a nat- natural progression. Anybody who's listening in South Jersey will understand this. A lot of folks go into, that's their first taste of uh, public service going into, into lifeguarding. And then they, they move on either fire service or police, et cetera. So anyhow, I took the test and I, I did really well on the test. And my parents wanted me to finish college. And I said, well, look, you know, this is a great opportunity. I was 20 years old. I could get in early and finish my degree. And, and you know, my parents were not real. They were not real receptive to that at first. But they said, hey, look, if you promise us you finish your degree and then, you know, you pursue things after that. OK. Long story short, I took the job. I was hired at you know, 20 years old. And uh, I went on to finish my my bachelor's and then even went on to get my master's as well in the police graduate studies program at Seton Hall University, also in New Jersey. Uh, so that's sort of my path into law enforcement. I then subsequently spent 25 years uh, in the profession, had a great career. I was very fortunate. Um, I had some great training opportunities, certainly great promotional opportunities that I took advantage of, studied very hard for tests and was fortunate enough to come out high and get promoted. And I, I retired at 46 years old as deputy chief of police. So uh, I owe a lot to the department for those experiences um, that I was afforded, both, you know, interdepartmentally in terms of promotions and assignments. I spent, you know, close to 13 years on the SWAT team, starting out as, you know, your, your, your typical rookie, um, carrying what we would call, you know, the bag of band-aids, stay on the perimeter guy. Uh, that's where you sort of, you know, make your bones and, uh, you know, went through the system and became a team leader, a supervisor, and then eventually executive officer to the team. So I, I really had some really good experiences. I also was very fortunate to be selected for the FBI National Academy, um, which I attended in 2014. So it was a great experience. And truthfully, what I will say is I'll close it up with this. I would not be able to effectively do what I do today for first responders if I hadn't had that career, right? It gives Joe and I the credibility to speak about, you know, operational and organizational stress and traumas and what that looks like from either firsthand experience or vicariously through the people that we work with, uh, the people that we supervise, you know, the, the lives that we were responsible for when we rose up into our respective agencies. So, uh, th- that is a, a very important part of our story, you know, giving us credibility and, and doing the things that we did because we lived it. Uh, but I can tell you without any hesitation, this is, you know, the best work we've ever done in terms of fulfillment and meaning behind it, because we get to see these outcomes all the time, virtually and literally every day uh, when first responders are you know, in a dark place, they come to somebody who, 
you know, they, they trust or they heard that they could trust and were able to get them connected to the right clinical resources. For Joe and I, there's, I would say there's no higher honor for us at this point. So that's sort of my path. That's what's led me uh, to where I am today and what, you know, the meaning behind our mission here at Acadia and the public safety team, what we do now. Well, going back to your father for a second, obviously we're going to get deep into mental health as his child, whether it was when you were younger or whether it's now looking with a different lens, did you notice or did he ultimately self-identify issues of his service as he progressed through his career and beyond? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, he didn't talk. He came from the age, right, of, of where, you know, he didn't talk about those things. It was not it was not part of the operational vernacular, if you will. It wasn't the, wasn't the language used back in those days. And honestly, it wasn't the language that you know, the profession used when I came on the job in 1992, it wasn't a whole lot of talk about mental health and emotional wellness and what, you know, what repetitive exposures to trauma can do to you. Um, but, you know, he shared that stuff with me later on, you know, when I was well into the career. So my, my father spent a good, a good portion of his, his career uh, in our juvenile unit. So obviously you get to see some horrific things, you know, involving children and adolescents, you know, all kinds of abuse. So he did share some of that, that stuff with me. And, you know, I think, A, um, not being part of the operational language, right? It just wasn't things that you talked about. You know, and he, maybe he wanted to save me from some, <laughs> from some of that, you know, vicarious trauma. So, uh you know, later on in, in my career, as I progressed, we, we certainly talked about some of those things. And then, you know, my brother as well. I mean, he, he was involved in a couple of you know, really violent incidents, doing undercover work, uh, some shooting. So, you know, I know what that looks like up close. And, and of course, you know, as you, you rise in rank, you're responsible for so many lives. And, and, you know, we worked in a busy sort of urban environment where there was violence and there were, there were police shootings. There were all kinds of you know, violent sort of activities involving gangs and drugs. So this this was not something that was, I would say, an unusual occurrence. Unfortunately, in the, in the department I worked in, uh, it, it was it was part of it. You know, so I, I got to witness those things, got to see them, and um, I see the outcomes. So, well, one more question before we go to Joe. Um, you mentioned lifeguarding in New Jersey. I had a, a guest who became a friend, Jason Bitzer. And he ended up being one of the best lifeguards in um, Hawaii. So like true, you know, revered lifeguard. I was a lifeguard for a long time, but in pools and open water, so not the ocean. Talk to me about that, because I don't think most people realize how, you know, how high on the totem pole a New Jersey lifeguard is. Yeah, so there is, and, and I, I believe this is, this is an accurate, I've been told this, uh, I believe the Atlantic City Beach Patrol is the oldest organized paid beach patrol in the country that that's i'm pretty certain that you have to fact check me on that but i'm pretty certain that's that's accurate so there is a long uh storied tradition in atlantic city and because we're on a barrier island right so um i mean there's some legends that have gone through uh the atlantic city beach patrol you know one of my brothers was was uh was on there too so you know it 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 forged boys into men. You know, it was there, there's unpredictable surf. We have a lot of jetties and piers in that area, so it, it creates sort of a, um, you know, a rip rip current um, that you know you 14, 15 years old, you become a lifeguard. It is baptism by fire. You are swimming in that stuff. So, and you have to learn how to how to 
go with the current, not fight against it. It's a really, really good education. And it's funny that you bring that up, too, because, you know, we are doing a lot of work uh, in New Jersey. I am in this part of New Jersey with the beach patrols. And, you know, it's really starting to become part of their conversation about, you know, what trauma can do because you're exposed to a lot of, car as you know, cardiac events, possible drownings. I mean, there's there's some pretty traumatic stuff. And when you think about young kids who get into that profession, because let's face it, it's an awesome summer job. Um, if you're in high school or college, you know, you get to sit on the beach, you, you, you know, you have good camaraderie. It's, it's, it's pretty good pay. Um, so there's not a whole lot of downside um, until there's, you know, a traumatic event. So when you're talking about 15, 16, 17 year olds that who really have never been exposed to that sort of traumatic experience that suddenly get exposed to it, you need to be aware of what the outcome could be if they're not provided with resources or an opportunity to maybe process that, that type of incident. So we're doing some work with the beach patrols around here, but it was a great experience. As I mentioned, I mean, there's really been, it's been a great sort of um, springboard for folks in this area who have you know gone on to become certainly police officers, firefighters. That's a big one. But also, I mean, you know, high-ranking political figures, attorneys, doctors, you mention it. So it's been a great springboard in this sort of area of, of Southern New Jersey. That's a profession that it kind of gave me an aha moment where there's a lot of uh, struggle in our professions when it comes to maintaining a fitness standard. And, you know, I have a lot of people from the special operations community come on and obviously they have a standard and if you don't meet it, you're not in the team anymore. But it made me re realize that the ocean lifeguards are the same. Like if you can't pass your swim tests and all the you know, the hoops that you have to jump through, well, then you're not going to be hired that next season. But for some reason in fire and police, there's so much resistance to simply just putting a bar. And if that bar is at the front door, it's going to encourage you to maintain it. And we are an environment that sets us up to fail physically, especially the shift work in the fire service. However, you know, no other profession where lives are at stake do they discard a fitness standard except fire police and ems yeah that you you nailed it and i know you're a big fitness guy um I, I am sort of myself too we talk a lot about that in terms of um you know resilience building and and i'd love to to delve into that in into the conversation i don't want to take up too much time but yeah, i mean fitness it needs to be a non-negotiable in your personal contract with yourself especially if you are a first responder i mean there are so many reasons why um, it's not just, hey, it's good for you or, you know, you'll look good in a uniform. While I have no problem with those sort of reasons, it's should be low on the totem pole. It's the counterbalance to cortisol. There, There's so much research out about it. Um, a study that, you know, I recently read about, um, you know, th them talking about uh, you releasing, you know, these mitokines, which are, you know, hope molecules. Right. That's what science calls it. And moving your body, it, it's basically it's basically the counterbalance to stress, repetitive exposures to stress and trauma. And we know we know definitively through science and psychiatry and psychology that repetitive exposures to stress and trauma, which is what fire service and police and first responders have, the most effective, most efficient way is through moving your body to restore those things right so yeah i mean I, I could talk all day about the the importance of exercise but you're right you nailed it um it's it's we we've lost sort of that as a priority um you know in the first responder world and it's it's one of those things that we we really as a profession 
we as a discipline, we really need to look at restoring um, for the overall long term health, not just in the profession, but personal life and beyond. So hugely important subject. Absolutely. All right, Joe, thank you for your patience. Same question for you then. So uh, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings? Absolutely. So so I was born in Breckenridge, Minnesota, not Breckenridge, Colorado, because uh, I've uh, my entire life endured to be a downhill skier. And uh, I wanted to be snow patrol when I went through college. So I took those classes. But uh, we we re- right after that time frame moved to the Twin Cities, St. Paul, Minneapolis area. So that's where I actually have my earliest like memories of growing up as a child. Um so I'm a middle. I'm in the middle. So I have two older brothers and one younger sister. Not quite the Brady bunch, as Bill said, but uh, yeah, uh, same blue collar kind of situation that I was raised in. My dad, at the time that I can remember, he was kind of managing some of the very large uh, hardware stores in the in the Minneapolis St. Paul area. And uh, my mom actually worked as a secretary in one of the churches that uh, that we went to in 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 St. Paul. It's actually St. Paul Park is where where we ended up. Um, but I had an interesting, uh, interesting thing happens in my childhood is that my dad as managing one of the large, uh, stores and, uh, um, had one of the employees that was, uh, stealing from the organization. And it just happened to be the son of the owner. And, uh, my dad did the reports, did all of this stuff out. And he was told that he needed to change the report. Um, so that it didn't reflect that the son of the owner <laughs> was the one was doing these things, and he refused to do it. He said he he no, this is what happened, and this is the way I'm going to document it. And he was uh, he was immediately fired. And uh, so from that point, he he kind of had some very uh, hard manual jobs that he was working then pretty much the rest of his life. Um, and so he he showed us the example of. Uh, sticking to your values and your ethics regardless of the consequences because that's who he was and uh so that that was a pretty interesting thing to experience as a child because uh i didn't really have somebody that was a first responder public safety uh person as a guide in my life um until recently i actually found out that my grandparents on my father's side were both investigators for the irs and uh and bill that's interesting now because bill and i have done 14 webinars now with the uh, the investigative regional offices for the IRS and uh, talking about organizational operational stress. And uh, they're dealing with a lot of that right now. But uh, then before I went into high school, we uh, we decided that we were going to all pack up and move to northern Wisconsin in the middle of nowhere. And this was when uh, when I was going from junior high. Actually, I was in junior high at the time. And our family had 40 acres out in the middle of nowhere, northern Wisconsin, that was right against some uh, county property and then some national property. So literally, we were moving into the middle of the wilderness to the point where, you know, at that age, I literally believed that if I if I ventured f- far enough into the wilderness that I would run into some like Native American villages <laughs> at that point. You know, you're, you're, what, 11, 12 years old and you're like going on this adventure. Um, but so then we moved up to northern Wisconsin and uh, went to uh, went to college. Uh, interesting thing about uh, my parents, they did not have formal education. Um, however, we have uh, uh, quite a bit in our uh, in our family where uh, we now have 
for my three brothers and sisters. We have three associate degrees. We have four bachelor's degrees and we have three master's degrees uh, for the four kids. So their um, support for higher education for us has translated into uh, every one of us having a higher educational degree, including then my children and the children of my siblings as well. Um, so I met my wife in college in Duluth, Minnesota at St. Scholastica. My path at that time, um, I wanted to be a helicopter pilot in the army uh, until I found out how long that was gonna take because I didn't enjoy high school. And uh, went after meeting with the, the uh, recruiter a couple of times, and then going back to college and talking with people that were actually in the service that were in college with me, there's like, you do know that it's going to be about eight to 10 years before you see a helicopter. You go, no, the recruiter didn't say that. <laughs> it's like, you need to re you need to ask better questions. So I went and I did. I talked with him. He's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be at least eight years on your second or third re-upping. And uh, that was a lifetime for an 18-year-old. You know, you're looking at half of your life you're going to spend back in school again. So uh, I was looking at youth ministry at the time, and uh, my wife was actually working for a security outfit up in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. And she's like, hey, they're looking for security guards. So uh, in 1984, I, uh, I put a uniform on and I didn't take the uniform off until February 7th of 2020. So I did 35 years in law enforcement, um, a 21 as a police chief in a couple of different communities in Wisconsin. I jokingly say, but it's not a joke that I don't like negativity especially if it's in front of my temperatures. So I moved to Texas. So I don't I don't deal with minus 30 anymore um, because it doesn't happen in Houston. And that's where we're, we're living at now. But similar experience to Bill. Um, you know, I did 15 years in SWAT. Um, that led to a lot of very cool things happening, both on an international uh, and national level where I was doing a lot of instructing. Um, we did work with almost every special operations unit in the different militaries. Um, that led to me being connected with uh, Ken Murray, who is the guy that created the simunition round, uh, the marking cartridge, and uh, that helped lead me around the country as well, doing a lot of instructing. And uh, and that's kind of where I really enjoy being in front of people and helping them um, prepare for extremely difficult situations um, out there on the job. So, um, and a lot of different hats, a lot of different roles, but uh like Bill was kind of alluding to, co collectively, we got over 60 years of experience on the job. Um, and we talked to a lot of people about the trauma. And we did not get to have those type of discussions when we were coming up in the ranks. Uh, you know, he went to the FBI Academy. I did as well in 2009. Um, I had the, the great fortune of being in the very first class at the National Academy that was titled Spirituality and Wellness for Law Enforcement. And there was... 20 of us in that class for 10 weeks. And we were having discussions around the difficulties of the job and outside of the job that I had never experienced before. And we're having these discussions as groups coming to the pretty much the same conclusion is that why has our culture developed into something that we can't have these critical conversations with people in our own organizations to get it out of our systems? You know, we all think that nobody else understands what we're going through and nobody understands that what the difficulties are that we're facing on a day to day basis. But everybody is so much more alike than we are different. And when we have these conversations, we understand that we're not alone, is that we have to develop our tribe. We have to develop a group of people that we're going through this together with and lean on those other people when things get difficult, not isolate ourselves and stop talking about it. Um, 
And we didn't have that, you know, and I'm sure when you started too, it was like when difficult things happened, it was like, just suck it up and get busy, you know, rub a little dirt in it. You'll get over it. Or, you know, what we'll do is like, let's just get through the shift and we'll go down to the local pub and then we'll just resolve everything that way. And, uh, you know, more unhealthy coping mechanisms. And like Bill talked about the, the physical fitness, nutrition, when we're having these discussions around the country is that the lack of nutrition, the lack of physical activity, the lack of sleep, these, these things are like the trifecta of, of killing us. And, and, we're, and we're not fixing that and having discussions on how we could do that. You know, I started, I got promoted very young in my career. Um, I became a chief young. I, I started as a police chief at, in 1999. And now looking back, the amount of trauma that was going on in that environment, um, I went to a fairly small community that was a suburb, kind of a St. Paul area. And the very first year, we had uh, we had one of the students get killed in a car crash before school started. And it was very traumatic. Well, the second year, what we had is we had twin brothers get killed right before school started in a traffic crash. And you know what happened in th year three? Yep. <laughs> three girls got killed before school started. And now we're coming on to year four. What do you think we're thinking? It's like, oh, my God, here we come again. Are, is it really going to happen? And it didn't. But, you know, the whole anticipatory grief and anticipatory trauma of thinking back is what may happen now because of what happened in the past and getting that whole idea that that's difficult. You know, the, the calls that people are going on, especially dealing with kids, you know, and, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, is that we have got to have these critical conversations and have have safe environments for people to have these conversations when they're not okay with what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's kind of my path. And then uh, I retired, like I said, February 7th of 2020 for two and a half days, <laughs> and then went to uh, to work full-time with, uh, with my friend, Bill Mazur. Um, we kind of split the country, but we do a lot of stuff together on a national level as well. Um, and he said before is that this isn't something that we have to do. This is something we want to do because it's fulfilling. And, uh, and I had a conversation this morning is that I've had more people tell me this year that are that I saved their lives than I did in 35 years of being a police officer. So why do we do that? Why do we do what we're doing? That. That's the reason. Beautiful. Well, there's so many things I kind of want to pull out from that, but let me pick a, an important one because it doesn't get a lot of discussion. And I think a law enforcement lens and a firefighter lens are uh, are two that see the raw truth we lose forty thousand people every year on our roads that's who actually dies so obviously hundreds of thousands have life-changing injuries and i think it's five million accidents a year in the uk i don't know if you've ever come across this but our driving test is extremely hard and most people take about two or three attempts to even pass it but you Go do all kinds of maneuvers and, you know, you're reversing around corners and parallel parking and having to, to prove yourself on all these different types of roads, roundabouts, huge one. Um, and then when I first came to the States, I took my driving test to forget my very first American one. And I genuinely hand on my heart thought that we just did a kind of warm up before the actual test and they go, congratulations, you passed. And I'm like, we just drove around like two streets. And, you know, which in, at the time I wasn't a firefighter, but okay, well, that was easy. Then you go through a career of cutting people out of cars, and then you're like, when are we going to start talking about this? 
because you know it just happens over and over and over again and and so many of the macabre uh images in most first responders minds the firefighters aren't usually from fires you know and a lot of police officers is not normally officer involved shooting it's the horrible things that we see on the road so again staying with you joe first talk to me about your perception from the preventative side of how we can improve all the horrible things that happen on our roads Wow. Uh, you know, we're, if we come up with the solution, we're going to be able to quit our day jobs probably on this one. But uh, yeah, I think that it's just awareness, like you said before, and having people understand their physiology when it's not where it wa- they want it to be. So that when you have that event that's like activating your, your sympathetic nervous system behind the wheel and recognizing the fact that something has changed and that you can actually do something about it. You know, obviously you can't stop some of the things that you don't see coming, but you can actually put yourself in a better mindset to be able to deal with difficult situations. And that's one of the things with this whole resiliency uh, kind of trend or the movement that's happening right now is that managing your emotions through understanding your own physiology can actually put you in a better place. And it can actually put you in a better place, too, if you're involved in an accident, right? Because uh, you may not be able to get out of the vehicle, like you're talking about having to cut people out. Okay, so what are you going to do if that's the situation? And pre-planning these scenarios or these situations in your head so that so that if this happens, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z in any one of those particular situations. And having those discussions ahead of time. You know, it's like we talk about setting up uh, peer support teams or having wellness initiatives within your organization and then having critical conversations and pre-planning for these things. The fire service is amazing about doing pre-planning and having all of the different things and practicing for each one of these different scenarios that happen. But what I think that a lot of our first responder communities aren't doing is doing the exact same things for people that are struggling and having those those discussions. It's like, okay, so so if if one of us, let's just use this as an analogy, Bill, if the three of us go out on a call and we're dealing with an infant death, what are we going to do with Bill or how are we going to have these conversations if we recognize that he's having some significant struggles over this particular situation? Okay, let's play that out. How are we going to have this conversation? What are we going to talk? Who are we going to call? Who are we going to get involved? If Bill needs to go somewhere to get therapy, who are those people? And if it's more than therapy, what does that look like? Does our insurance cover it? Is this a workman's comp situation that we have to get workers comp involved? Let's do this, all of this stuff ahead of time because we know it's going to happen. And if we know it's going to happen, why are we not pre-planning for it? Bill, your response. Yeah, I <clears throat> I, I thought that your question was more directed towards I mean, Joe, everything Joe just said was 100% accurate. I mean, that's that's um, that's our experience. I, are you, were you referring specifically to the road as well? Well, it was an interesting um, kind of parallel into the mental health side. But yeah, for, I mean, just to, to give you my thought, at the front door, I think we need to make the standards a lot higher so that people understand the why why you keep distance from, why you use your blinker, why, you know. So therefore, there just doesn't seem to be understanding of why. It's just like we're on a big racetrack and everyone wants to get there first rather than what I see in other countries 
not all of them go to portugal they drive like crazy people but um you know like the uk it's a lot of sharing the road they'll let people merge over because i mean if you all share the road you actually all get to your destination a lot faster what i see here is a lot of selfishness and i don't think it's because someone woke up and decided to be an asshole that day i just don't think they were ever told hey if you sit in the outside lane of a freeway at 70 miles an hour and there's a half mile line not only are you being inconsiderate, you're also increasing the chances of an accident or people to try and get around you between other cars, for example. Yeah, I think you actually both made beautiful parallels. Joe was was referencing, what do you do to prevent things, right? And 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 he did that eloquently. And And I think to your point, I think what happens is what society will allow to happen. And let me let me give you an example. So one of the most successful peer programs ever to be implemented um, d- is related to driving in the road. Do you know what I'm referencing? It's the designated driver. Oh, yeah. How did that start, right? And right. So how did that start? Obviously, a, a dire need to address drunk driving. Um, there was also sort of a co-issue like teenage drunk driving. Um, I can tell you now, I don't know what the statistics are, but that has been drastically reduced. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Of course it does, but it's drastic. Drastic. I mean, I have, well, I I have two teenagers. I had three teenagers at one time. One's an adult now. Actually, they're all adults, to be honest. I have twin 18 year olds and a 21 year old. But, you know, that whole thing of designated driver and it's real and they really adhere to it. And how do they do it with what they won't tolerate a clear campaign? education conversation right so look that includes i mean this is just this is just the human the human way of thinking it also must include stiffer penalties right there must there must be consequences included and i think what you know what happens is we we probably give licenses to people who shouldn't have them and and there there should maybe be you know an age restriction you know on the on the higher end um, inattention. I mean, inattentive driving. I think I believe it's always been the number one cause of actions, of, of accidents. Driver inattention. It's on every accident report. Um, and so, you know, distracted driving, texting, right? The, the cell phone. There, there's so many things, but it all starts with a conversation, you know, and and realistic, you know, directed campaigns toward minimizing those outcomes and putting it really in people's face, not to scare them, but to make them aware of the reality so they can be, they can hold themselves, you know, more accountable and, and, and their families, their immediate family and friends. So. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to, you know, the way that law enforcement is viewed, because I think that's a big part of this mental health pro- uh, puzzle, especially in your profession at the moment that, organizational betrayal and it may not be by the organization it may be by you know the way the profession is perceived one thing that you never seem to hear in conversation when we have that bad apple video or you know the gray area video that people are trying to paint as a bad apple is why are our streets so dangerous and you know this is a this is an important conversation because if you go to Reykjavik or Oslo or um Lisbon there aren't gangs trying to murder each other on the corners. You know, there, there aren't, there isn't a lot of this violence, a lot of the homelessness, a lot of the addiction that we see in, for example, the US. And so it's very unfair to say, oh, the police that look like they're going to war. Well, yes, because there's a lot of people trying to kill them out there at the moment. So again, with your lens, 
with that element, what is it that is creating so much crime on our streets at the moment where there are other countries that would, that's just not normal for them? They're not having school shootings and gang-related murders all the time. Well, I think I'm going to piggyback on what Bill was saying before, is that what we are accepting <laughs> and what, what the communities and those in charge of those communities are willing to allow happen and then look at as normal. And, uh, you know, I was just in uh, just in Denver and, uh, you know, some of the side streets, there's a lot of a lot of tents set up, a lot of homelessness there. Um, and I was there for our FBI National Academy conference. And we have people from all over the country coming in there. And uh, those that weren't from the major metro areas were were wondering, why do they allow that? <laughs> why do they allow that in the, in the city streets in downtown in some of these bigger cities? Because they do. They just they have chosen not to do something about it. And uh, obviously, once you go certain distance, it's hard to come back from it. Um, but that's not the way I grew up. Like I said, I grew up in St. Paul, <clears throat> fifth and sixth grade. We we're taking the city buses downtown as fifth and sixth graders. for cry. I could not imagine that for my kids at that age, going down to, to, the, to, the, to the middle of the city now at that age. It'd be terrifying. Um, but we've allowed it to, to transpire. And as you said before, that, that it's not happening in other places because they don't allow it. Bill. I, I would also add to that. Sure. I think it's multifaceted. Obviously, there's no one clear cut answer. But, you know, they're multifaceted in that there is and this is some personal belief, of course, too. I'm not this is not a political uh, statement, but, you know, the multifaceted approach I mean, you can't deny that the breakdown of the family unit causes interpersonal traumas you know, or generational traumas, um, which result in mental health issues, right? So the, the breakdown of the family unit, um, the generational trauma, um, poverty, mental health. And then, of course, you know, you, you cannot talk about these things and not include the importance of law and order in those conversations. Uh, we don't mean law and order in a heavy handed sense. We mean law and order in a common sense approach, right? Be respectful of your neighbor, um, you know, respect laws, um, you know, be considerate, th those, those types of things. And, and, you know, look, social media and, and the, you know, the advent of I can get on social media and comment and say anything to anybody with virtually no consequence, almost no consequence. Maybe you could be ghosted from social media, but you know, there's still the damage is probably already done at that point. You know, you can say anything about anybody. And and so I think that breeds a, a lack of respect for your fellow human. And if you don't have coping skills and you're you're triggered by things, you know, you'll say something, maybe sometimes you don't even mean it, but it makes you feel good in that moment. So you say something that's inappropriate, hurtful, disrespectful, and then that just grows. And there's just a, this disrespect in, in humanity becomes acceptable, so to speak, or normalized. So that's what I mean by multifaceted. There's a lot of things going on here, um, but I, you have to mention all, all of those things when you're talking about long-term solutions, family unit, accountability, mental health, poverty, law and order, all of these things sort of, you know, not one of them is the answer, right? Because there's an old saying in law enforcement, 
you can't arrest your way out of every situation. In other words, arresting everybody isn't the, but it, it's it's part of it sometimes, right? He, there, there, there's a, we are all for re- rehabilitation, uh, Joe and I, and, and people that we represent, we're all for it. There's probably no bigger uh, proponent or, or advocate than us in terms of rehabilitation and getting people help. But at, at some point, you know, consequences have to be, you know, administered too. There has to be some, you know, keeping people accountable. And sometimes there are some folks that, you know, that need, need prison. So we don't lose sight of that. We, we don't see it as a, you know, a panacea that, that cures everything, but it, it's part of the picture. So. James, and if I can just go back to your analogy about um, teaching people how to drive appropriately, it's, it's the same type of analogy now is that we have to not only tell people what not to do, we have to train them how to do things the right way. And I think that that's, that's been lost. <laughs> it's been lost in society of how you are supposed to behave as a good citizen. Absolutely. Well, you talked about not being able to rest your way out of a problem. It's been an interesting evolution on this podcast. When I first started, it was probably maybe a year into it. My mom and brother had moved to Portugal. And people listen to this show have heard this story before. I apologize, but it, it's the way they kind of set up you know, what I'm about to talk about. Um, and she said to me, did you know that they decriminalized addiction here in Portugal? And so I, I didn't. I did more research. I ended up managing to sit down with the, the, the gentleman who spearheaded this initiative in Portugal. Um, and what happened, they had this massive opiate epidemic um, and they had done the war on drugs model uh, to you know, no real effect. So the country democratically chose to try a different in- initiative. Um, smugglers, you know, dealers, they were all still, you know, iron fist with them. But the addict with the user's amount wasn't even forced into addiction counseling. They were just simply educated. So they weren't going to get arrested. Um, but there were these you know, addiction centers, um, medical health, excuse me, mental health counseling. There was job creation. Um, and it destigmatized being an addict. And so a huge amount of them came out of the woodwork and, you know, sought help. Now, of course, there's that portion that were just hooked and to this day are still shooting up. But a majority of them were, you know, completely turned around. They went from one of the worst epidemics in, in Europe or the world to one of the lowest now within less than 10 years. So now, you know, we're being more open in our professions and we're realizing that addiction is crippling so many people in uniform as well. So with this 2023 lens, another kind of layer to this is, you know, we've got people in uniform that serve their community or country that have to go overseas to get psychedelics that seem to be working well for their mental health. So without loading the question, this is just my personal opinion, seeing the failure of the war on drugs through a firefighter paramedic's eyes. What is your, you know, have you yourself had an evolution from being told you need to enforce this this law to maybe understanding that there's a mental health crisis that is behind the addiction and that we cannot arrest our way out of the addiction crisis? Sure, I'm happy to answer that. Yeah, great point. And, and you know, I'd like to see the other parameters that also worked into their success. Uh, there, but to, to very directly answer your question, I know that we feel together um, that the education that we've received over the course of our previous career and now on trauma has changed our perspective on 
addiction, uh, whether it's a process addiction, substance use, you know, there, there are various addictive type type things, scenarios. But what we've come to realize is that trauma can and will drive behavior. Right. So so look, if you look behind the addiction, which is almost can seen be seen as a symptom, uh, you look beneath that. And this is a great analogy for firefighters. If you don't address the trauma underneath the addiction, it's like not addressing the fire in the basement and worrying about the roof. Right. So, look, that doesn't mean that people get a free pass for committing crimes if they're addicted or for abusing themselves, self-harm or, you know, whatever they're engaged in. Um, But it gives you perspective. Right. It's not a free pass for them to do it and say, oh, you know, I feel sorry for them. That's a different thing. Um, what, what we're saying is it can, as a first responder, especially a police or firefighter corrections person, learning this early in your career or even before you go into the first responder world, give you perspective on humanity and will make you look at people just slightly different. Not, oh, I feel sorry. Again, it, it's empathy. It's different from sympathy. Looking at them and saying, gosh, you know. I wonder what happened to them in their lives to bring them to where they are. Guarantee you there's a story behind every one of them. Um, we are very much proponents of getting people uh, treatment as opposed to incarceration when appropriate. Um, that doesn't mean that everybody um, should t- get a pass on incarceration. Look, there's there's plenty of addicts that, that, that we've spoken to, people who have struggled, who said that prison is what got them clean. Right. That was their bottom. So there again, you know, you can't you can't put a blanket statement on everyone. But what, what I can say is, is that your know, trauma is a big part of the picture. And so, you know, on top of that or to add on to that empathy thing, what we need to look at is where the trauma occurred, which most likely was in their developmental stage. Right. Childhood trauma. Um, and look at how we can do a better job as a society. You know, with that, I mean, just look at the, the, you know, the child trafficking and the human trafficking stuff that's going on. I mean, that stuff starts at a young age. And, you know, that is a recipe for, you know, horrific early emerging adulthood for folks into their adulthood when they've experienced horrific amounts of trauma through various forms of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual. Those are the things that we really need to focus on. Um, and how we can be better at preventing them. And I think, again, it goes back to family unit and, and having morals and principles and being raised the right way and healthy. And so, I, you know, again, multifaceted. And uh, but we are, you know, we are huge proponents of, of looking at treatment as an alternative where appropriate to a incarceration, no doubt. Yeah. And I think that, like you're saying, too, and a bill was alluding to it, is that it sounds as though Portugal had a plan in place before they flipped the switch. And uh, I think that we we were asleep at the controls on that one here, is that we just decided that we were just going to flip the switch and it was going to be okay because of the the mental health stuff that was behind the addiction. But we didn't have the resources or the knowledge or or the the wherewithal to to catch the people at that moment. And that's where I think a lot of the issues now with we're talking about the crimes in the cities how how much of them are driven by by drugs 
you know, that uh, that they're looking for the next fix. And how do they do that? By stealing stuff and and doing different crimes. And and again, like Bill was said, it's a symptom of the trauma. Uh, we talk to first responders every day across the country. Um, we've helped a lot of them get get help. Um, we haven't helped anybody get into a substance abuse uh, program that as a first responder is not driven by trauma. That 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 is a symptom that is a, a, a maladaptive behavior that they put in place thinking that that is going to help their traumatic situation. And it just made things worse, obviously. And the idea that we have so many first responders come into the job with a, adverse childhood experiences, the whole ACEs thing is that the average first responder has is probably pretty high on the ACEs score um, and hasn't resolved that issue before they got to the job. So why why do we get into a business of helping other people? Because it's so much easier than helping ourselves, right? <laughs> and you know that uh, I I often tell say that in their training they're great at taking care of other people, but we suck at taking care of ourselves because it's hard. And but you can do it if you're shown and taught and trained how to do it ahead of time. Again, that doesn't mean things aren't going to be difficult. But hopefully, coming through difficult situations, then we become stronger as a result of it. And then we can help teach other people. Well, that tags on nicely to what I was going to ask you guys next. As I got deeper into this podcast, there was a com- there was multiple common denominators. The Venn diagram just kind of overlapped again and again and again. And one of them, and I always credit Jake Clark from Save a Warrior, really opening my eyes to this, was the impact of child childhood trauma. That's why I love to start at people's early life because I'll open the door. Some people's early life was, was amazing, beautiful. So you had a good, strong foundation when you went in. The other 80 plus percent, not so much. You know, there was a lot there. Some addressed it well, some buried it and it, you know, reared its ugly head later in their profession. For me personally, I ended up testing and working for four different fire departments. I went out, started the East Coast, went to West Coast, came back to East Coast. Um, and so I got an interesting perspective of multiple hiring processes. The same thing happened over and over again. There was a polygraph, three out of four of them, which, you know, I basically, to, to be honest, I lied my way through because I tried being honest my very first app and I got it thrown back in my face. So I was like, okay, so, you know, you have to pretend to be a choir boy to be a firefighter because, you know, people that go run into burning buildings usually have got some shit in the past that, <laughs> that you know, gives them those tools. Um, but then also the, I believe it's known as the Minnesota's personality test, um, the standalone one test that they use that a lot of my psychology and psychiatric friends have told me since that is never meant to be a standalone test. It's part of a gamut of tests for forensic psychology. It's useless on its own or, you know, all, all but useless. So you've got these two pots of money that departments are already spending. Now we have an understanding of the high ACEs scores of a lot of men and women that are walking through the door of a first responder profession. Why not take that same budget and you're going to PT these recruits, you know, X amount of times a week. Why not in a six-month probationary period give them six counseling sessions? Now you're given an opportunity to offload childhood trauma. You've created a relationship with a mental health professional and you've made mental health a norm at the front door. That's, uh, that's a great point. And uh, Jake's a good friend of mine. I went through Save a Warrior um, uh, session 057 a few years ago. But absolutely. And, you know, the studies that they're showing the people that are coming in there that that have not dealt with their adverse childhood experiences. And so why not just come to the conclusion that they're coming with them? 
And we need them because we already have them on the job. And like you said, they lied their way through it to get on the job. So why don't we just help them all become better people? Because we need them to take care of themselves to give the level of service that we want them to give to the computer to the community. Uh, there's a funny analogy that somebody said the other day in one of our trainings is that as first responders, we just keep just pushing everything down, right? In our in our bucket, and we just keep keep putting it in and putting it in until it's full. And then once it gets full, what do we do? We just jump on top of the bucket and try stamping it down so we can fit more in it rather than actually getting the stuff out of the out of our system. So that would be fantastic. You know, we're talking about trying to do more resiliency training in the academies, um, but it can't be a one-stop shop. You know, the, the guy that ran the uh, the program that I went through at the FBI Academy, the uh, this uh, spirituality and wellness, he had a great analogy that he used is that we expect our people to come into this career field, walking through the mud and come out clean on the other side. But we don't give them the resources to wash the stuff off and to live the life that they they truly deserve before, during, and after their careers, um, we got to do better in every single aspect of it. Yeah. So I think what you're referring to um, is mandatory wellness um, initiatives. And that's really, we've been big proponents of that. And we've written articles on it, co-authored it, which have appeared in in some really good publications. We've written an organizational checklist. and, And so I think that's a wonderful idea. And I think that, you know, the new generation coming through or, or, you know, developing uh, into the first responders of tomorrow, I think are definitely more open to that than, you know, maybe from someone from our age bracket or or demographic, Um, because this is sort of, you know, uh, a higher level of normalcy for them. But but what I think is is probably um, just as important, at least, maybe not even more important, and maybe easier to, to get through is this idea of teaching resilience and what that looks like, healthy coping skills, and making them understand that, hey, look, you know, you've gotten into a profession where we already know, this is not conjecture, where it's not, it's not maybe, we already know that you're going to have a much higher level of instances of exposures to trauma. It's going to happen. It's a matter of when. It's not a matter of if. So here's what to look out for. Here's what happens to your body physiologically when you are in a hypervigilant state, like educate them to those, the effects of trauma Um, and, and how things that may have occurred in your childhood, whether it was a loss of a a significant loss, a death in the family, whatever it was that, you know, these things, while they may not be triggers for you now, or may not be something that's unsettling to you that you think about all the time, when you experience perhaps something similar, you may be triggered by it on the job. And these thoughts and memories could come back. We see that constantly, James, constantly. People who have buried stuff um, as their body's own defense mechanism against that trauma in their youth. And then later on in life, this stuff comes back and it comes back like a tidal wave, right? I mean, I'm talking about people who maybe were exposed to domestic violence in a home growing up, sort of suppressed it. And then when they get on the job, there is, there is, that is a trigger point for them. Right. Um, so, so those types of things, and, you know, we're really proud of some of the things that we've been involved in. One of those things uh, is the resiliency project in New Jersey. And both Joe and I were involved in that. It stemmed from Joe's involvement with the FBI national Academy. He mentioned it early on in, in our interview here, uh, he was part of uh, one of the first classes and became one of the first classes who became master trainers through the air force in the resilience 
project. And we brought that program to the state of New Jersey uh, via the FBI National Academy Associates. And they basically gave it to New Jersey as a model um, for free, if you will. And I'm proud to say that Joe and I were you know, involved in the ground floor in bringing that to New Jersey. And New Jersey became the first state, the first state in the country to make resiliency education mandatory for all 36,000 plus police officers. We're attempting to maneuver that into the fire service in New Jersey as we speak right now. So has it made a difference? Big time. Now, you know, there hasn't been any long-term studies, right, on the, on, on the, um, the outcomes, um, scientific studies, I should say. But anecdotally, what they've done in New Jersey, ha- has it saved careers, families, and lives? I can tell you unequivocally, yes, because I'm, I live in New Jersey, so I get a lot of these referrals, and I see the language and the environment, how it has changed in New Jersey because of this process that we brought here. So you get this educational resilience in the academy. Never happened before, right? They talk about trauma. They talk about substance use. um, They talk about the outcomes if you don't have healthy adaptive coping mechanisms. And this, you know, this is, this is a drastic, you know, gear shift, if you will, into another lane from, Hey, uh, like Joe said, Hey, rub some dirt in it, man. You know, you'll, you'll get through this. Hey, you know, the easiest way to deal with that trauma, just move on to the next trauma, uh, so to speak. And, and we're really we're really tra- changing the language here in New Jersey. One of the things that they adopted was every police department must not not can or, or should shall have an RPO, which stands for resilience program officer, regardless of the size. So if you are a department that you know has hundreds of officers or 10 officers, you are required by the attorney general of the state of New Jersey to have somebody in your department that is a referral source where you can go to confidentially and they can get you help. The chief cannot take that information, cannot demand it. The prosecutor, the attorney general can't even. It is a HIPAA protected confidentiality protected conversation. So things have changed massively here and it's spreading um, with the help of Joe and I into other states, Georgia, Texas, uh, Wisconsin, a lot of these states are looking at this model and moving towards, you know, wellness and resilience as a mandatory educational piece that you receive just like any of the other mandatory uh, subject matter. So it's really cool progress that we're seeing. It would be nice if everybody adopted this. Well, with the the kind of HIPAA protection, is that also then addressing the issue that I hear a lot from law enforcement of that fear of having your gun take away the moment you proclaim that you're struggling in any way, shape or form? Right. And that, again, that's more of an individual kind of situation, I think, with the agency and the lack of knowledge surrounding that. Uh, I think we're changing. You know, we're going in the right direction, like Bill said, is that and it's in the fire service as well, is that this was. A lot of people in top leadership positions came through when we did, and and they didn't have this information. You can't necessarily hold people responsible for knowledge and information that you, they don't possess. But but now having these discussions, and like what Bill was saying too about this resiliency and the frequency of trauma that that our people are being like encountering on a daily basis, with that knowledge comes responsibility. And when you have that knowledge and you don't do something with it, that's negligence. (laughs) So now you're acting in a negligent way if you're doing some of these things. 
because you know that they're coming to the job with a lot of trauma, probably from adolescent trauma that they haven't resolved. You're putting them in situations that the frequency of trauma that they're seeing on a regular basis is putting them in an area that they are more susceptible to having other things happen in their lives that are negative, right? And then saying when somebody comes forward and saying that, boy, I'm struggling, you're saying, okay, well, first of all, we're going to take all your job away from you. Is that really a path to ask for help? You know, I, I often say when people tell us that, and we have this all the time, well, we got a great program. You know, we got a policy that surrounds it. We've got these different people in place. We got a team. This is how we're handling the different things. And this is what they know. And it's like, okay, that's fantastic. You need to have those things. Tell me how the last person was treated. Because you can have the best policy, you can have the best plan, you can talk about all of the things you're doing, but if you treated the last person like crap, the next one's not going to ask for help just because of that. So I think we're we're getting there. Like Bill was saying with the New Jersey, that it's mandatory that they have these things in place. They have a person there. Um, you know, when we're doing these type of things, we try to have as many points of contact as we can within an organization because we don't know where somebody's going to reach out. And they may not reach to the administration just for that reason, like you're talking about. But what did we hire these folks to do? We hired people in the first responder public safety world to solve problems, to fix people, to get to where they need. And when they can't do it for themselves, there's a level of shame involved with that. Is that, you know what, you hired me to be a peacekeeper, you hired me to help people, and now I can't even help myself? Boy, what does that say about my skill set? You know, that's their mindset. You know, what we have to realize is that, well, we put you in situations that you are now thinking that way. <laughs> we have to help you think a different way. You know, one of one of my friends here, Bruce, in the area that I, I said a phrase in one of his, and he uses it for all of his kids, is that you are only one thought away from changing your mind. You're simply one thought. And, and if your thoughts are spinning you in a direction that is negative in that, you need to be able to stop that and, and put a different thought in your mind is that, you know what, it's not because of what happened to me, it's the situation that I've been involved with that is making me think this way. And how do I think differently? If I can't do it myself, I've got to ask someone else. And it has to be okay to ask someone else or lean. Um, you know, there's another chief from the Illinois area that kind of coined the phrase of, um, perceived burdensomeness. There's a perception that, you know what, James, I got a lot going on. You've got a lot going on. I'm not going to burden you with the stuff I got going on because, uh, you know, that's just too much for your plate. Even though I would be really frustrated and I'd be upset if you were having difficulties and you didn't ask me for help, you know? <laughs> so we have those conversations, try to flip the narrative on them. It's like, well, what? how would you feel if they didn't ask you for help? Well, they, they can always ask me for help. Mm, there it is, right? So it's creating environments that it's safe to be able to have these discussions is really what's in, it's most important right now in our in our cultures. James, here's the other thing too. You know, sometimes leadership gets caught up, and I'm not throwing a dart at leadership. We were part of leadership. Um, sometimes you get caught up in the liability of this or perceived liability, right? When someone has a problem and, you know, when you're in a leadership position, you know, it, you have 
various levels of concern coming at you peripherally all the time, right? And liability is something that's pushed on you from either your employer, the city manager, the mayor, whoever it is, right? Everybody's got a boss, so to speak, in this in this in this uh, sort of table of organization, and and so. What Joe and I say is like, here's another way to look at this from beyond like the, the internal leadership, like maybe to your city, your government, whoever. We are protecting our investment when we have resources for people because you do the numbers. After you've been on the job as a firefighter or a police officer for you know a decade, you know, they probably spend close to a million dollars or more on you, right? Through training, salaries and wages, fringe, all, all these things equipment. So do we want to see who is this good for if this person, you know, crashes and burns because uh, we fail to recognize an adverse reaction to the trauma that they've experienced on this job where we employ them. They're doing the job that we ask them to do. And we're going to now say, sorry, buddy, um, you know, go deal with that on your own. Right. So protecting your investment and there's nothing wrong with looking at it, not I wouldn't say singularly through that lens, but accompanying the, the lens of humanity. Hey, we need to take care of our own. We're also protecting our investment because what happens when you have to fire the individual or let them go? Certainly does not good, look good for the department or the agency. It's not helping the person or their family. Um, there's a lot of negativity associated with that, right? So why wouldn't we set up resources to protect that investment, get them help? Because what we see vastly um, are positive outcomes. Now, we can't, nobody can promise outcomes and say everybody's going to have a, a fairy tale ending, right? But what we can say is the vast majority, it's in the upper 90th percentile, the vast majority of folks who reach out for help, who get help, especially for trauma and mental health, they, they are able to recover. They are able to get back, be deemed fit for duty, and finish their careers. There is such a small portion of folks that leave the profession due to this. I mean, we can count on one hand over the last six years, literally one hand, as many people that have left the profession after getting treatment. And every single one of them left because it was a mutually agreed upon decision between the provider themselves and their department. Hey, they should move on from this type of work. And because of the trauma or whatever it was, and they and they they got pensions. So we speak from a place of credibility because of the vast majority of people that we interact with nationally. We're not just doing this. We don't just work for a facility in a small town or in one state where this is our experience. No, we work actually internationally with folks, but most of it's nationally from Hawaii, Alaska to Texas, California, Florida, and up to Maine and everything in between. So we have the credibility to say these types of things because of the cross section of people that we deal with. The vast majority of people, when they ask for help, they get connected to the right clinical resources. They're able to process and heal from these things and live long-term uh, you know, lives of wellness in their career and beyond. So we are, that's why we're so enthusiastic and have so much energy behind this because we can see the outcomes that occur when you get connected to the right clinical resources and you're supported departmentally. I mean, it is such a, it is so like Joe and I talk about this all the time. We're, we're always like super, you know, energized when we hear Oh, and my, you know, oh, my captain or my battalion chief is really supportive. And my, my peer group or my chief or, or, you know, the sheriff or, 
you know, the fire commissioner is, is super supportive of me getting help. We're like, thank goodness. That's a, that's a, a huge part of the sort of the table, the foundation that you need to, to get well. So that's, that's kind of how we see it in terms of, you know, an agency, a government, an organization supporting their folks. It's protecting their investment. This is a conversation I've had a lot of times because you talked about that humanity piece. To me, a lot of times, to be hands on my heart, it's just lacking. You know, we have it's departments that lose firefighter after firefighter after firefighter. And I say, like, all right, give me a body count. When we reach that quota, are you going to start changing? Because it doesn't seem like it's, it's moving you at all to go to funeral after funeral after funeral. And the sad reality is that sometimes it's the money that makes these people aware. Now, I would argue that it's a mental health issue. If you're a council member on a city or a county and you're not moved by this, then maybe you need to go see a counselor yourself because there's some ethical issues there personally. However, the the false economy that is the budgetary year through a first responder's, you know, first responder management eyes smacks against any successful business. So if you look at Google or Virgin or some of these highly successful businesses, they're investing in their people. They have gyms, they have flexible work hours, you know, so they're encouraging people to thrive and and have longevity in their profession. But then you look at, for example, the fire service at the moment, 56 hours a week, short staff that turns into 80 hours over and over and over again. They're actually bleeding money on the back end, because you have not only the mental health side, you have the physical health side. So you have workman's comp claims and overtime covering vacancies and malpractice lawsuits and all these other things that are costing them 10 times what it would cost to just give these men and women the rest and recovery they need. And as you said, the physical and mental health tools to allow them to thrive, process trauma, recover from injury, and therefore have longevity in the career and maintain that um that knowledge that you get from a veteran, but also have a fruitful retirement, which I think every single first responder deserves after 10, 20, or 30 years in uniform. Well, um, it, it just came to mind as you're saying this, and it's the most the most valuable apparatus that any fire department is ever going to have is the brain and the heart of each one of their operators. And the in the simplest way to make your investment actually thrive and grow is to take care of it. And we're not, you know, if you pay a million dollars for a ladder truck, hmm, you can't put a few different programs in place to actually maintain and nurture the, the most important apparatus on the department. And uh, it's absolutely. And the thing is, is that some of these things are so simple. They're so simple to do. But unfortunately, simple does not equate to easy all the time. And like Bill was saying, the conversations when someone actually reaches out and asks for help, that is not easy. It's simple. <laughs> all they got to do is pick up a telephone or they got to reach out to somebody that they that they trust. But that's not easy. And, you know, having these discussions with people when you line everything up for them, what they can do to be better. Because that's what we why we do this. Our purpose, Bill and I, our purpose for existing is to help our first responders get the type of care that they can. And why do we do this? Because like Bill said, we have seen the outcomes. We have seen the smiles. We have seen the lives, the careers, the families that have been saved as a result of someone getting the right kind of care. Someone that understands a first responder, what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, and then does the right types of treatment and helps them get to where they need to be, 
Hmm. It's amazing. It's amazing when we see that. But we also see those that that get right to the door, right to the edge, and they look over and it's like, oh boy, that I can't make that step. I can't make that next step. And it's like, you know what? I can't, I can't carry you through the door. Here it is. You know, we don't have any magic words. We don't have any pixie dust that we can sprinkle on you to fix it. You've got to do the work. And that's the same thing with the Sable Warrior when they go through. It's like, we're going to show you all the tools, right? But guess what? This is just the beginning of starting your work. So I would add to that, James, too, is that there's, you know, gosh, you know, Joe and I are self-proclaimed geeks when it comes to this. We could talk about this stuff for hours on end. But, you know, so many things run through our minds when, you know, when, when certain points are brought up like the one you did. And I think, you know, unfortunately for some folks, and this is, this, this is, you know, pretty offensive when you think about it, they think of those, uh, those deaths and, uh, and injuries and traumatic stuff as sort of collateral damage. Like, I think one of the most offensive things that people can think or say outside of our profession, the first responder world is, well, you knew what you were getting into, right? So, and, and my response is, well, no, because I've never spoken to a firefighter or law enforcement corrections person or EMT or any of those other disciplines that didn't get in this to help people. That's the most common response. They didn't get into it for anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, trauma, anger issues, right? So no, you, that's not what you're thinking when you get into it. You're certainly aware of the dangers, right? But I think people become sort of numb to it because it happens and it's it's a fleeting thing. So I think some of the folks, even folks with good intentions, um, and 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 you know, comes from a good place, but they they can become emotionally detached to the life of a firefighter or first responder or police officer that loses their life, their their lives in the, in the course of their duty. Um, and and look, some of that falls on us, you know, the people in the profession. We need to do a better job of talking about it, keeping it front of mind for folks. Um, and, and cause at the end of the day, it takes a special person to do what we do and what we've done. Not everybody's cut out for this work. Um, and people say, oh, well, you have a choice. You have a choice. Yeah, of course you have a choice. Um, and, and this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people identify with the good guys. As I mentioned earlier, um, you know, helping people is something that gives me fulfillment. So I think the emotional detachment, um, seeing people as a number, collateral damage, that those are all things that sort of play into that. And it, it needs to be talked about more internally by leadership in the first responder world, influential people who hold positional leadership uh, sort of um, stature and talk about these things. And, and you know, what, what the loss of a life can do, you know, I mean, one of the organizations that, you know, on the law enforcement side that does a real good job with this is Concerns of Police Survivors, who, you know, is one of our partners, too. It's the Cops Foundation. I know the fire um, service has a, has a similar um, type of organization, but they do such a good job of honoring those families in their service. And I just think that needs to become part of the mainstream mainstream um, acknowledgement of, of how valuable first responders are to our society. And it really, it, it, it comes back to biases, obviously, in the leadership role is that you have to, I think that you have to do a, a deep dive and, and take a true look in the mirror is what what your belief systems are, what you think about addiction, mental health issues, suicide, 
as it relates to the first responder community. You really have to do that. And uh, you have to come to terms with the fact that that you have a belief system of cert- around all of those things. And whether or not your belief system is detrimental to the welfare of the people that you are supervising and leading. And if it is, then you know what? You need to check yourself. <laughs> you need to see whether or not that this is really where you should be or if you need to educate yourself around it and really come to terms with you know, what we're discussing is that most of the addiction issues that Bill and I are seeing in the first responder community are being driven wholeheartedly by the trauma that they've either brought to the job before they got there or that they've seen since they've been on the job or a combination of both of them. And what is that leading to? The number of suicides that we're having. Absolutely. And the overdoses, which I think is still the elephant in the room. You know, those are those are the died suddenly announcements that we see over and over again. Well, I want to hit one more topic and then obviously we'll go to what you're doing to today, um, what you're doing today, excuse me, and, and the, the um, tools that you provide people listening. But just before we do, I'm just going to open the door. You go wherever you want. But Joe, you mentioned about Save a Warrior. A lot of people I find that are in this advocacy position now usually have gone through some highs and lows themselves in their career. So was there a personal journey that led you to, to where we're about to talk to, about next? Well, it was interesting because uh, if if you go through the Save Warrior, occasionally they'll have uh, folks there that are, they call them witnesses, right? That are witnessing the program. Um, and it's just to get an idea of what the program is and what they're doing. Um, so I went because I was in this capacity. It was just shortly before I got in this, I was doing some contract work with Bill and with Acadia. And, and I got to the program and I'm sitting in the seat there was 13 of us that were going that were there and they started identifying or or introducing me as the witness and i'm like you know at the first break i'm like what is this witness thing that you're identifying me as and then they came back from break and they're like oh there are no witnesses you're in the program <laughs> so so i was i was in and i'm so grateful that i was because um i learned so much from the people that were in that group with me and the support and the tribe that was developed and the people that actually helped lead us through that that week that i was there um you know it's like bill and i talk about a lot is that we, in our careers in an, in the fields that we're in we have to be very quick to judge because that can save our lives you know, you have to judge the situation. You have to judge the people. Are they a threat? Are they not a threat? You have to judge, you know, do I go in through that door? Do I not go in that through that door? All of those different things. Um, that was, I think, the beginning for me to be able to acknowledge the fact that I can't judge. I can't judge myself because, you know, we're so much more difficult on ourselves than anybody else that's going to be in our lives, right? Um and just accept people for where they are at that particular moment. Not necessarily what got them to there or where they, they might go after that, but just be present now. Accept them for the fact that they have gotten where you are, and me too. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a really great quote there from uh, John Maxwell, great author. He did Minute with Maxwell and stuff. In one of his books, he said that the greatest gift that you can give to anybody that you truly care about in your life the absolute best gift is a better you. <laughs> and, and what my acknowledgement and understanding about self during the Save a Warrior idea and uh, idea, the, the retreat, was that I thought 
I was balancing things really well, you know, taking care of myself and taking care of other people. And I was really balancing that really well. Hmm. Oh, hell no. (laughs) I was, I was pushing, I was given everything out that I had to take care of other people and taking care of myself was not a priority because I, and again, it's easy. It's easy to help other people. It's extremely difficult to help yourself unless you actually prioritize that. <laughs> and and that's what I learned going through that Save a Warrior. And sure, I dealt with all kinds. 35 years in law enforcement, so much trauma that I've seen, that I've experienced, uh, that I've witnessed, um, that I thought that I was compartmentalizing. Um, you know, and I I I kind of jokingly tell people that, you know what? You're, you're, you're saying you're really good at compartmentalizing and putting this over here and that. Guess what? We got one compartment. <laughs> Everything's going in it. So you might you might try to put walls up around different things and stuff. But when when push comes to shove and when when the big things hit in your life, um, all the compartments are equal game <laughs> and they're all they're all spilling into each other. And unfortunately, when that happens, it doesn't stay in your compartment. It spills on everybody that you care about around you, and uh, it's affecting your relationships then. So that's what I learned going through with Save a Warrior. Um, did I think that I needed it for myself when I started it? No. At the end of the program, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I learned an awful lot, and I developed uh, great relationships that I still am in contact with several of the people, and that was years ago that I went through it. Um and I I talked to a lot of the uh, the alumni. I was just texting with one of them today um, about the different experiences and the things that we have because we need people in our lives. We need tribes. You know, there's a great book out there actually called Tribe, right? And that we need to have these type of relationships with people around us because this is not an individual sport. Life, <laughs> it is it is a collection of people that we can get around us that can help us through difficult times. So that's my experience going through Save a Warrior. That's one of many different retreats that we uh, that we work with across the country. Um, there's all kinds of different levels of getting care. And maybe that might be the first step for you to be able to accept the fact you need something and get to there and uh, then start doing the work because they're not going to do the work for you. Absolutely. Well, just to jump in, because I want to hear from, from Bill, same question, but one of the other lesser addressed elements is busyness. So we have the term overtime whore, you know, that usually if you look in the backstory of that person, I mean, it makes no sense to want to work and not be with your family unless your family is so wrong that you need a new family, (laughs) you need a divorce and, you know, get your kids adopted, whatever, if they're that bad. But the reality is most people just haven't addressed the things between their ears. So as you said, helping other people is easier than helping yourself. So if I stay another 24 at a fire station and run my ass off because I'm in an urban or, or suburban department, I don't have time to think about all the bad stuff. And then I can kid myself that it's all about the overtime, but it's not all about the overtime because you can always spend a little bit less. Well, it's a it's another way of isolating from another part of your life, right? Now you're isolating from your family and uh, extra duty jobs. And the firefighters are great at working other jobs when they're not at the station, Right. And the whole idea of working that rotation is so that you can recover on your off time and not go back and working the entire time that you're off. And cops are the same way with all their extra duty stuff. And then they become dependent on the extra money. And then what happens when they don't have it? Yeah, exactly. 
Well, Bill, over to you. Firstly, any any highs and lows that led you to be so passionate about this topic? Sure. I mean, just the career alone, you know, working in a, in a highly dynamic urban environment. Um, I, I got to I got to do some really cool things, but you know, concurrently, you get to see some really bad things. Um, you know, I spent years doing some undercover work. I, I supervised a street crimes unit there. Spent some time, you know, more than a decade, a dozen years on, on SWAT. So there's a lot of a lot of situations there that were <laughs> extremely dangerous, and you know, repetitively exposed to that, and that becomes your normal. Um, so that that's part of it. But I also I also saw so I saw the gamut of of outcomes if you will. I saw people with good, healthy coping skills and a good foundation and support system survive and thrive. And then I saw, you know, everything in between all the way up to the ultimate horrific outcome, suicide. So, and, and I saw fire, you know, firefighter, firefighters and multiple, I mean, it was, it was last time I counted, it was around a dozen of my colleagues over the course of my career that took their own lives, died by suicide. So that was, you know, something that was, I was very aware of and, you know, went to too many of those, those sort of funerals. Um, in my last five or six years, there were multiple officer involved shootings, um, you know, that resulted in the deaths of suspects. And I saw what it did to a lot of good people. Um, and as I, as I progressed through the, through the ranks, um, wellness became much more of a focus, uh, not just my own wellness, but, you know, organizational and, and what we could do differently. And, you know, I didn't have all the answers at the time. I, I certainly, you know, made some great strides. Um, you know, we built a, we built a state of the art fitness center. Um, you know, we, we got lots of people help, but there still was much to do. Um, which led me into doing this full time. One of the one of the, I would say one of the most poignant um, things that, there were there were many, as I mentioned, the suicides. I had people close to me, very close to me, who you know dealt with some addiction issues and trauma and stuff like that. And but there was one in particular that is September third, two thousand sixteen. It's a it's a very well known incident. Um, maybe some of your listeners heard of it. It was it was actually one of the guys that worked with with me. Um, one of my guys in the operations division who was shot in the head um, September 3rd, 2016. He and his partner interrupted what they thought was just a like a disturbance, like a fight, and it turned out to be a, an armed robbery in progress. So the, the assailant just, you know, they pulled up on the scene. The assailant just, you know, fired at close range, hit the guy in his head. The, the officer's name is Josh Fidel. And what ensued after that was, you know, probably one of the most miraculous stories you could ever hear of you know, survival and recovery and forgiveness. It's, it's amazing. Um, and and I, I only share this because Josh shares it publicly and, and we've, we've gone around and actually spoken about the incident, you know, probably, you know, close to a hundred times at this point. Um, but it's a, it's an incredible story. And it was, it was, you know, he, he had less than 1% chance of surviving because of where he was shot and, and uh, his, his partner, at the time, a guy by the name of Thomas McCabe um, just performed incredible, was able to return fire, you know, kill the assailant, come back, pull Josh into the patrol car, get him to trauma in less than two minutes. It was like 90 seconds and save his life. He had one, less than 1% chance of living from the injury that he had. He was struck in the head here. 
So had to learn to walk and talk again. I mean, there's this, the story is just incomprehensible and, and just amazing. It'll floor you. But that, that was, you know, I would say probably the defining incident for me in terms of really me, really pushing me, you know, or, or, you know, guide, I shouldn't say pushing me, guiding me into where I am today. And, um, you know, I, I, Josh is one of those success stories. Um, and again, I'm only sharing, I'm not disclosing anything that's, that he wouldn't allow me to speak about, um, you know, but, you know, his process of healing and getting help. And, and now he's, you know, he's got a foundation and he, 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 uh, he's a, he's a, a professional speaker. I mean, he helps, you know, first responders who have survived trauma. So there, there's a whole, there's a whole other, you know, associated backstory with, with that outcome, which really pushed me into and guided me into wanting to do this full time. So again, a gamut of experiences through the career, but I would say, you know, that was probably, you know, the, the, the most defining moment of my career when that happened. So, and here I am. Well, it sounds firstly like I need to get Josh on the show too. So I'm going to have to dig into that. Um, Absolutely. So you both work now for Acadia Healthcare. So talk to me about that transition. And then obviously there's the red, white, and blue program as well. We'll discuss that. But as, as a whole, you know, what are, what are the services that you're now able to bring to the professions that we've been discussing for the last hour and a half? I could start out with that. So, um, so what we're called, what we call ourselves basically is, is uh, public safety liaisons or first responder liaisons. And what we kind of say is that we help our first responder community and our agencies and their families navigate the behavioral health system so that when they're looking for care for something that they're struggling with, um, it's simply a phone call away and we can connect them with what we consider culturally competent resources, meaning people that understand the first responder community uh, what we what we basically try to do is triage the situation and figure out where they're presenting on the behavioral health scale, because what we don't want to do is uh, is shoot too high and get them into a, a level of care that they really don't need. Um, and we want to make sure we don't go too low either, because if they need a higher level, we want to make sure we're kind of hitting that sweet spot. Um, so what we do is we work uh, with a national team. They're called a treatment placement specialist. And they're spread across the entire country. There's about 80 people on our team. Bill and I focus exclusively on the first responder public safety world and their family members. But the other team, they help everyone within their particular area of responsibility. So when you call Bill or I, for regardless of where you are, you're going to get our entire team. And their responsibility is understanding and knowing the resources in their, in their area and working with us because we try to vet out those resources. And we're not going to get you with somebody that doesn't understand what a first responder does, whether it be a therapist, whether it be a, a residential program, whether it be we have situations where people are in acute hospital because they've been a, you know, they've been a danger to themselves or someone else. They might be suicidal. Um, what we do is we, then we can work with that program and that facility to do a bed-to-bed -bed transfer to get them to where they can get care. Because obviously, if they're in that a hospital setting, the responsible for the hot the responsibility of that hospital is the stabilization, and and to make sure that you're not going to harm yourself or kill yourself, um, and then we'll get you somewhere that it can actually provide that the level of care that's going to get you back to where you need to be, and uh, we do that all the time. We do a whole lot of coaching. You know, obviously, we're resiliency instructors, so we spend 
as much time as we need on the telephone with with the people that are calling and asking for help, regardless of where they are. Like Bill said, internationally, yeah, we do a lot of work with the federal agents that are spread across the entire globe because we have people that are stationed there. Um, and to date, <laughs> we're we're real real proud of the fact that we have never had anybody, not one person, reach out that we have not gotten them a resource across the globe and getting them connected with someone. If you call us, we're not going to say, sorry, can't help you. <laughs> we're going to connect you, whether it be uh, someone that needs to go based on their insurance. You know, we we refer people, we get people into the care. Uh, what we do is absolutely free. We don't charge for anything that we do. If we connect you with a therapist, that's between you and the therapist to work the details out on that. If you go to a program, whether it's an Acadia program or outside of Acadia, we don't work for any program like we talked about at the beginning. If you call me, Jim, for yourself, somebody that you care about, we work for you and we work for that person. And we're going to connect you and that person to the resource that they need, regardless of where it is, who they work for. We're going to connect you that way. And that's what we do every day. And uh, I'll let Bill add to that because uh, he's my partner. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, Joe, Joe put it all, connected all the dots there. And, and, you know, what's interesting is, is that, again, you know, we're not, it allows us to do our job very ethically as we view it because we don't work for a facility, right? We have, we have access to hundreds of facilities, um, so we're not salespeople, we're not marketers for a facility. And I'm not throwing a dart at that. There's some great people who do that. That's just not what we do. Um, we what what our product is helping you locate what's clinically appropriate. Now, we don't do that through diagnosing you. We're not psychoanalyzing you. We're not qualified to do that. We work with the team, there's many clinicians on there. But the truth is we have helped thousands of people. And when you have the volume of conversations that we have. And, you know, look, we get training, too, in this. You don't need to be a doctor to recognize some of the flags. That's what being a peer is, right? So if you have the frequency of these conversations and the volume and you know the outcomes and um, you start to get a really good grasp of what nuances to look at for resources, what programs, right? Is there a diagnosis? Are you working with a, a professional now? Loop them in by all means. Um, you know, and then there's sort of there, there's other nuanced details like, is this a mandatory thing? Are you involved in some discipline? So there's it's not just about, hey, what's the right clinical resource? While that is hugely a part of it. We also want to know the nuanced details. Is this a mandatory thing? Did your department send you for a fitness for duty? Are you in trouble? Is there discipline? Is there are there criminal charges? You know, someone have a DUI. So there's a lot of nuanced things that. Joe and I are familiar with having spent, you know, full careers in there and then being in leadership positions and doing this thousands and thousands of times over, but also through the clinical avenues that we have. Um, and we do a lot of peer work. I mean, Joe said, you know, we spend a lot of time on the phone, just listening to folks, just being there as a non-judgmental peer to listen to them. I mean, Joe and I get this, this reaction quite a bit and it goes something like this. Hey, man, I, I can't tell you how much better I feel just talking to you. And we're not there to cure any. We're not being a therapist. We're not a clinician. But just, it's probably the first time that the person actually unleashed some of this stuff or unloaded some of this stuff. And ironically, we were just talking about this yesterday. You would be surprised 
how willing people are to share some of this stuff with Joe and I as effectively as strangers to them. Like we don't know the person and they would not share this with their closest friends or their family again because of the shame or the stigma or whatever, but they felt a level of comfort sharing it with us because they realize confidentiality is the number one priority. There ain't a chance in hell we're sharing any of this with anyone, um, including your department and even your family, unless you give us permission or there's some other reason. Um, so that, that goes a long way, the confidentiality piece, um, the stigma, the shame. And um, you know, so we, we, really, we, we, we really feel honored to be in a position where we get to listen to folks, but then we also have the resources to connect them instantly. Because the last thing you want to do is not be prepared when somebody comes and says, hey, I need help, right? I mean, risk mitigation is a huge component of what we do in this world, the first responder world. This we treat no differently. We are there, we have resources, and um, you know that's really what we believe is is our lane. It what's makes, it's what makes us special, we believe. Um, our role, not not individually, our role is special that you know, we have access to so many resources. And the truth is, is that I think Joe touched on it. The vast majority of folks are calling us to be connected to an outpatient resource or a therapist. And we, that Acadia does not, well, we have some, we have some IOPs, but you know, the vast majority of them, I mean, are upwards around 80, closer to 85% of the clients are looking for a culturally competent professional that they can be connected to a first responder therapist is what I'm saying. So we connect those folks all the time and they're not employed by Acadia. There's no, there's no transactional thing there where we have an agreement where, Hey, they pay us or we pay them. It, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. They are just people that we've located, interviewed, vetted, heard through word of mouth that we know they are who they say they are and they can treat who they say they can treat first responders and their family members. So the vast majority of folks, that's what we're doing. Uh, the other portion 15 to 20% that are looking for inpatient, we, we do that and we do that well. Um, so whether it's mental health, substance use, or even a psychiatric stabilization type thing, um, we do that as well too. So that's sort of the gamut of who we see as clients. I've heard so many EAP horror stories. So when you talk about culturally competent clinicians, this is a huge thing. I just don't think there are enough of them. And even like where I am, people reach out to me like, okay, who do we have around here? And I'm like, well, there's one I know, but she's off in the Northeast helping after Hurricane Sandy or through the COVID crisis or, you know, whatever it is. So a lot of the good ones usually get pulled from their area and sent somewhere else as well. So there's a thing, uh, a, a it's not an app, technically it's a website, but um, Redline Rescue that one of my friends created, which is a great resource to find some of these culturally competent clinicians. But it sounds like, you know, what you're doing is, you've got this network and i think it's it shows a little bit about the business business ethics that 80 plus percent of the people that you're referring aren't going to your own organization right uh -huh. yeah absolutely and and how we learn about more is like that conversation i'm going to look up redline rescue now because we'd like to be connected because uh obviously we can't know every single pocket of the of the nation uh, so when we do our talks and we talk with people, it's like, if you're seeing someone or if you have a great resource, please share that with us because it's only going to help other people. And uh, just getting back to EAPs, Employee Assistance Program. Yeah, most of the organizations that we talk to and deal with, 
they don't use their EAPs for whatever reason, you know, they don't trust them or someone, you know, we're really bad at actually giving grace to anybody because someone may have gone to the EAP 20 years ago and it sucks. So, you know what, we're never going to give anybody an opportunity again. Um, but we actually have those conversations with EAPs across the country too, because if they don't have first responder resources, we can help with that. Um, what we did is uh, in one of the organizations here in Texas, I actually met with the EAP and their assistant chief and their wellness director because we saw that as a gap. And they actually went out and sought and got more people. And then we I vetted the, the list of people that they sent. And now they have a solid probably six or seven culturally competent resources that are therapists in the EAP. So there's ways of demanding that as organizations, because if you don't have it, you can actually pressure your organizations to do it and make sure that you have what's necessary. So one of the things that Bill talked about before is that um, on our webpage, and the webpage is helping the number one strresponders.com, we actually have the organizational checklist is there. It's 15 questions. You can actually do an internal audit and ask yourself, do I have these resources? If so, what do they look like? If not, how do we get them? And actually, that's how you can kind of form and develop your own wellness committee or wellness team within your organization. It's uh, best practices that we've seen across the country that that people that are doing these things are actually having these these resources in place. That's that's actually the first question on the organizational resilience checklist, we call it. The first question is, do you have an EAP? And, um, you know, what we've seen over the years is that some of the distrust or mistrust in the EAP is rooted in in legitimate, you know, circumstances, right? The legitimate facts. Other times, it's not. And what I can tell you is our experience generally with EAPs have been a very positive one. Um, sometimes they get a bad name, right? Like what Joe just sort of offered up as an example. And one person says something and, you know, it carries on. I've met some of the greatest people in this business who were associated with employee assistance. Um, I've also met people who just go through the motions. And what, what the message is, is that if you do have an EAP, if you know better, you must do better, right? There's that old adage. You must make an effort to bridge the gap between them and give them a chance and tell them what it is you need and what you're looking for. I mean, here's an example. Uh, if your EAP is located in city hall and there's a bench outside the door for you to sit on when you go to the, to see somebody, eh, that's probably where you should start. That, that probably shouldn't be the scenario, right? Because of the shame and state. And, and that's, that's a, <laughs> that's happened many times, right? So, these are like old things that people have hold on to, old processes that need improvement. And that's that's a way to address some of these things. If you want a better relationship, have an honest conversation. That's not offensive or accusatory. Let's try to let's try to figure out how to build this better together. Um, so so that and and we work very closely with a lot of EAPs. I mean, we get calls from EAPs like, hey, I have a firefighter here. Um, this is what we're looking for. This is the diagnosis. Here's the insurance. The answer is stand by. We'll give you at least a couple, you know, scenarios or a couple resources for, for the employee. And, um, you know, it's, it's great. We love it when we see an EAP involved, that's really, really engaged in the treatment process and the recovery and wellness of the, of the client, um, because they can be, they can be amazing partners in this whole thing, getting the person FMLA leave, um, getting, you know, holding their spot in, in the firehouse or, you know, where they're at, holding their assignment, making sure the families 
taken care of, additional resources for the family. We work with them on continuing care when they discharge from inpatient treatment. Like, hey, we'll find them a, a you know a clinician in the area that takes their insurance that they can continue their care. And so we, we've had great relationships and our referrals come from a lot of different resources, one of them being EAPs. So we enjoy a good relationship with most EAPs we encounter. Because and I'll finish by saying this, we're never meant to replace those folks. We're there to work in conjunction with them and stand side by side with them to help them. We're never there to say, don't call your EAP, call us. Um, although that happens quite a bit um, because of our, ex we don't have a, a, a direct link, right? So they know that some people are still fearful that if they go to the EAP, they're just not trustful that it won't get back to the chief or to the fire commissioner or whoever, right? So they go to an external resource like us to ensure, hey, again, there's not a chance in hell we're calling the fire commissioner or the police chief. This is just the way it works, right? And and again, some of the EAPs will just give our number out and then, you know, the rest is history. We, we'll, we'll, deal, we'll take the client all the way through the process, so. Beautiful. Well, we were connected by uh, Sierra Tucson. Um, so just I want to make sure we discuss this because they were the ones that connected us originally. So talk to me about the Red, White, and Blue program. Let me start. Sure. So, I mean, the Red, White, and Blue program has really grown um, into a, you know, one of the premier um, programs specifically for trauma recovery in the country for first responders. I mean, Sierra Tucson has a long storied history with their level of care. I mean, it is platinum standard, if you will. I mean, people from other countries come to their trauma recovery program, and that's been like that for a while. It wasn't always owned by Acadia Health, which is the parent company that we're, we're employed by. Um, but when they purchased it, um, I forget what year it was. It's been some time now. I mean, they have really built that into, you know, what many refer to as the flagship program of Acadia's, you know, 300 plus facilities now. Um, not only is it aesthetically beautiful, tranquil, serene, it's in the desert of, you know, of Tucson. Um, it's the it's the quality of care that makes them special. So they, they have an incredible trauma recovery program. They are licensed as a mental health primary facility, right, which requires a whole different level of licensure and credentials as opposed to like a substance use primary facility right so there there are there are, there are incredible um strict mandates and licensures that are involved in being a mental health primary what does that mean well in essence to, to break it down they can treat just about anything on the mental health spectrum behavioral spectrum even when there's not a substance use issue involved right so anxiety depression bipolar, you know, borderline personality, I mean, acute, acute cases of post-traumatic stress. Um, and, you know, we've even seen, you know, schizoaffective disorders. I mean, there's eating disorders, you, you, you name it, and they, they have a program for it. So they had been treating first responders, you know, sort of here and there and sporadically. Uh, and I want to say that their program is probably approaching 10 years old now for the Red, White, and Blue program. It's very close, I think, to about a decade so they had been treating first responders before that, but I, I, I don't know that they had a, a dedicated specific track for military and first responders, but they were doing such an amazing job of it with such amazing outcomes. You know, actually, Joe and I were part of that discussion um, uh, when they developed this into a really, really specific track and a real program in there. And they have they just have incredible clinicians there that, you know, I mean, they had an EMDR specialist who was, you know, 
internationally recognized, uh, you know, uh, as one of the leaders in EMDR, um, just all kinds of therapeutic modalities like TMS, transcranial magnetic uh, stimulation for depression. There is, there is acupuncture there. There's CBD, CBT, um, you know, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. So they have so many treatment modalities. And, you know, one of the folks that they had there who was really, he was sort of the, you know, the, the, um, he was the forerunner to it. His name is Bill Reynolds. Bill is a 30 plus year uh, military veteran who, who had an incredible path uh, in the, in the Navy. I think he, he rose to Lieutenant commander retired. He, he worked with a ton of special forces uh, during his time in the Navy and got a specialty in psychiatry. And he came to Sierra Tucson and was treating a lot of these vets and, and, and first responders and it was obviously, you know, he had a passion for it. So that's how the Red, White and Blue program was born. Uh, Bill was definitely an integral part of developing that program. He's the clinical director now. But of course, there were many other people in Acadia leadership who had a hand in that that made it happen. But they, they just do a tremendous job. And we've had, you know, we've had hundreds and hundreds of clients go there with some of the most incredible outcomes. I mean, you know, I say this quite often. I've seen people that go to Sierra Tucson's Red, White, and Blue Trauma Recovery Program that the average person um, would look at and say, you know, I'm not sure how a person recovers from that type of incident. That's the level of trauma that they've had. You know, I'm talking about, you know, firefighter watching, you know, a colleague perish, you know, in a structure fire, you know, a police officer responding to an active shooter and watching their partner get killed or, you know, horrific, horrific things that, you know, would be exposures in, in our discipline that you would look at and go, gosh, man, you know, where do you start with something like that? And I've seen them go to Sierra Tucson. And of course, the person always has to put the work in. There's no secret sauce. Uh, the clinical resources are there. Um, the person always has to put the work in. But, you know, when you connect those two things, the will to want to get better and then you set the table with, you know, platinum level clinical resources. They're the kind of outcomes that you can have. And, you know, we, we, get, we have the pleasure and the honor of, of seeing these things pretty often. So that, that's a super special thing. Joe and I have been to Sierra Tucson, uh, I don't know, between us, probably over 20 times. We take, you know, we take folks there from the various disciplines, you know, the first responder world, whether it's docs, EAPs, peer support, union folks, uh, peer coordinators and, and referral coordinators, we bring them there um, to sort of look behind the curtain and see what's going on there. And, and what I can tell you is, um, and, and, you know, this is not a sales pitch for Sierra. I'm, I'm just responding to the question and I wouldn't say it nor would Joe if we didn't absolutely believe in this. I mean, I've had people, we've had people go there who are very, very educated people who have been in this space for a long time. They've seen it and done it all. And their words are, this is what treatment's supposed to look like. They're not my words. They're not Joe's words. They're not even folks from Sierra Tucson's words. These are independent people who have come there, look at it, they see what goes on there, and they say, okay, this is the standard of care that should exist everywhere. Now, obviously not every place can do that because they're A, they're not equipped, they're not licensed, um, but Sierra, you know, they, they really do a tremendous job of the trauma portion and treating, of course, the co-occurring issues 
of whether it's process or substance use addiction. So we're real proud of, of working with them. Again, that's just one of the programs that we work with in our portfolio. But, you know, folks at Sierra are just tremendous. The process there is is you know, it's it's amazing to witness and to see. And, um, you know, we have such a good relationship with them. And Bill Reynolds, not only is he, you know, we we trust and believe in him clinically, but, you know, we've also become very, very close personally with him because of the kind of human he is. So that's that's sort of our take on, on Sierra. Right. And the only thing I can add to that is that both Bill and I have had very close personal friends yeah. and colleagues that have gone there and the outcomes have been amazing. So yeah. I can't, I can't say anything else. I've sell it, I've sent a family member there and, and because I've sent friends and coworkers and it's unbelievable. The outcomes. Well, that gives people hope and that's what we need, you know, finding the right counselor, finding the right facility. And as I've said in many conversations, there's, there's such a huge toolbox these days, you know, from, some of the more traditional counseling counseling methods, EMDR, all the way through to ketamine, psychedelics, equine therapy. I mean, there's such a gamut. So I think hearing not only that there are these these experts, but as you said, a platinum level that maybe someone is frustrated, maybe they've been through you know a clinic before and it didn't work. Um, I think that gives people hope listening. So that's amazing to hear. Now for people out there. Um, you know, you've got that's that's a specific clinic, but I mean, um, Acadia as a whole. Where are the best places to learn more about this, and and you know, put that into their own kind of pocketbooks that they have it when they need it. Right. So again, I mentioned our our web page for uh, Bill and I. It's helping the number one st responders dot com, and that can access all of our contact information. We have a number of different things on there as well as far as resources. Uh, we talked a number of times about the, the checklist. We also have on there a mental health handbook. It's a collection of articles that were written in a collaboration with Bill and I and our, our chief medical advisor, Dr. Genovese. Um, it's really the articles about destigmatizing, asking for help and what post-traumatic stress is and isn't. Um, we've done a number of articles. We've done some podcasts. We're open to have this podcast up there in the very near future so people can access that as well. We've got some videos and some of the stories that we talked about on there as well, and uh, some great outcomes. Um, and then, as far as the, uh, they can Google Sierra Tucson and look, or, or Google the Red, White, and Blue program. Um, there's all kinds of videos on there and testimonies about, you know, the the great outcomes from that. And we can put you in touch with any of those programs, and across the the gamut. And but again, we we're just here to help and to try to get the right level of care for people, regardless of where it is. Yeah, I, I, so I, I do want to mention, I mean, what what makes the, so the team that we're, we're part of, it's, you know, 80 plus strong, give or take a couple, um, the treatment placement specialists, specialists is with an S at the end. Uh, it was actually trademarked that the, the sort of the job description of what we, what we do, triaging cases, almost like a personal concierge for folks, you know, trying to navigate the system. That that was that was born through Acadia, and if you if you look at it, it's actually trademarked the, the symbol TPS Treatment Placement Specialist. Uh, there, there's there's been several copycats uh, of it, which I guess is flattery, um, but they really they really pioneered this sort of role, and um, you know being part of that team and having the subspecialty of of you know 
public safety and first responders and their family members is just one part of the team, right? So we have we have people who specialize in higher education, believe it or not, just college age people that you know that are dealing with mental health and addiction stuff. We have eating disorder specialists. There's numerous clinicians on the team. So we can actually help anyone because Acadia's network is so large. I think I mentioned it earlier that Acadia has been recognized as the largest behavioral healthcare company in the nation. And that's for good reason. It's, it's the, it's the ability of their outreach and their network being, you know, having access to hundreds of facilities and, you know, resources. It's a, it's a powerful thing. And so anybody could really reach out to us. Um, when we say we specialize in first responders and their family members, of course, that's what we do. And it's also active and retired. So there's that component, but, you know, look, we get calls all the time from, cousins of first responders or friends or my neighbor, you know, who are civilians. And like Joe mentioned, there is never a time when we will turn somebody away and say, sorry, we can't help you. That's not our lane. We have a huge network of professionals that we work with where we can get instant feedback um, depending upon the person's insurance, their geography, you know, what the clinical diagnosis is. So it's really, it's really special. um, And it's an honor for us to be able to have those resources when somebody sends you something, even if you're not familiar with, with the actual circumstances, we can email into our system and boom, you, uh, you know, you have all of these resources from the team members pouring into you. So it's, it's really a cool, cool thing to be able to have access to that. And uh, like Joe said, helping first responders.com. There's also the treatment placement specialist.com. Wet website, which links to us as well. So, because we're part of the team. Beautiful. Well, Joe and Bill, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation, obviously paralleling, paralleling your careers initially, but of the, the kind of uh, mental health conversations that have overlapped some of the topics that we've hit today. But this network of treatments and whether it benefits the company or whether you're sending people to the right fit, so you're benefiting ultimately the responder, I think is a beautiful model. So I want to thank you so much, both of you, for coming on and spending almost two hours on the show today. Well, we're just honored to be here and that you uh, that, to have the chance to talk and and learning from you as well. We need to get connected to your uh, to your Redline Rescue folks, and uh, it's because it's just going to build our network and our ability to provide more help. So, yeah, thank you, James. I know you have a you have a pretty considerable listenership. So kudos to you for building something that's very important and it's it's a it's a platform it's a platform for you know guys and girls like uh, you know in our profession where we can have these kind of conversations and it can it can resonate with somebody and you know joe and i always say this when we're speaking somewhere you never know who's listening that you might touch at that point and it happens every time every time we're somewhere speaking or in a class and it happens to joe and i too when we're sitting and listening to somebody else you never know who's going through something because everybody's going through something in reality. And there might be just some point or some phrase or something that you mention or an experience that someone will instantly relate to. And if that, if nothing else, they say, I'm not alone or they say, I'm not alone. Oh, and here's a resource for me. So thank you for what you do. Congratulations on what you've built here too. So kudos, my man.